Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast. Every week, we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Kristen Roberts, Vice President of News at McClatchy, and today I am joined by one of my favorite people, Alex Rorty, my senior political correspondent in D.C. Kristen, it's wonderful to be here at the 12th floor in the Charlotte Observer newsroom, where I am currently looking upon a breathtaking view of the nature forest? I mean, what, what, what are we looking at here, Jim? Uh, highways. highways. <laughs> well, there are the highways part. and then there are trees. And I'm just yeah. going to say it's a much better view than the one I have in Washington, D.C. And the person who you also just heard is Jim Morrill. He is our political reporter here at the Charlotte Observer. And thank you for welcoming us into your newsroom. Well, you're welcome. Glad to have you. All right, Alex, what are we going to talk about? So uh, let's let's get down to brass tacks. The first topic. Uh, let's talk about the Democratic primary in North Carolina. North Carolina. Just to set the scene for the, the listeners at home, uh, it's a state that is one of the many states going on Super Tuesday. So it comes after the first four contests in in order: Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. And then, of course, it is a big state. It has a lot of delegates to award, and I think. Jim, the thing that sticks out to me when I look at, from a 30,000-foot view, the state of the Democratic primary in North Carolina, that if you are someone who thinks that Joe Biden is still the frontrunner of this race— Still a frontrunner. And that includes Kristen Roberts. If you still think he's the frontrunner, your argument starts in a state like North Carolina, where, according to the polls, and there haven't been that many in North Carolina, but according to the polls, he is a prohibitive frontrunner. Crushing it. Crushing it. Um, Jim, what's what's your read on, on the state of the race and whether or not Biden is as formidable in this state as he appears? Well, he's formidable right now, but I think that can change. You know, uh, North Carolina's primary is only three days after South Carolina's earlier than ever. That gets that gets um, lost, I think. Yeah, um, he, he's pretty formidable uh, now in South Carolina. And so I think that'll carry over. You know, North Carolina's population is not unlike South Carolina's. Uh, the percentage of African-American voters in the Democratic primary is pretty high here, almost as high as it is down there, I think. So I think, you know, given given the fundraising numbers so far and given what he's raised here versus other candidates now, um, Bernie Sanders still has a loyal following here. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Sanders' numbers are growing, I That's think, okay. here. Um, uh, Mayor Pete hasn't made the, the impression here yet that he has uh, in some states. So um, I think it's still Biden's to lose here in North Carolina. And what's that about? Is that familiarity or is it policy positions? You know, I think it's a couple things. I think familiarity is certainly one of them, but I think I think a lot of Democrats in North Carolina are afraid of uh, somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket, not for necessarily just for what it might do to the ticket um, around the country, but what it might do for candidates in North Carolina. Uh, We have a U.S. Senate race here next year uh, where Tom Tillis, a Republican incumbent, is one of the arguably most vulnerable incumbent Republicans in the country. And so I think for uh, the Democrat to have a chance, and there's going to be a Democratic primary, they need somebody at the top of the ticket who's not going to drive voters away. Right. And that's really based on a belief about the ideological position of Elizabeth Warren and a certain knowledge about the ideological position of, of Bernie Sanders. Right. And I, I think North Carolina Democrats, by and large, there are certainly uh, pockets of uh, liberal Democrats here, just like every place. But by and large, North Carolina Democrats are like Governor Cooper, you know, kind of a moderate Democrat. Those are the, the successful 
Democrats, uh, Jim Hunt, uh, our former governor. There's a long tradition of that in North yeah. Carolina, more moderate Democrats. And so I think he, they'd want to see a presidential candidate who sort of mirrors that philosophy. And you see that in the numbers, Alex. You see that clearly in the numbers. And it's the reason why I always come back to Joe Biden being stronger across the country than I think people in D.C. are giving him credit for, right? I think there are a lot of Democrats in this party who are a heck of a lot more centrist than the, than the activist and the operative classes are. I, I think it's actually one of the biggest stories so far of the Democratic primary is, it's not just the media, to be fair, it's a, a lot of the candidates miscalculated Absolutely. about just how, and frankly, including Elizabeth Warren. I said maybe. operative class. Right. Well, you know, it, it is, you had all these campaigns that, um, you know, we have talked about them before on this podcast, if you look at Cory Booker um, or Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, they, these are candidates who embraced single-payer health care, or they embraced a federal jobs guarantee, which is arguably an even, even more far-reaching plan than a single-payer health care, and the run-up to this election. And then once this thing got started, all of a sudden, there, I think there were two recognitions. One, it's going to be very difficult to compete with liberal voters in a race where there's both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, and two, there aren't quite as many of these voters as we've seen. And I think the you know, in, if we're talking about the most important development of the moment in the, the Democratic primary, it's the rise of Pete Buttigieg, right? And Jim, I want to talk to you a little bit more about him and, and maybe why impressions of him are, are still so unformed or he's still so unknown in the state. But he has been able to rise to the top of the field in the polls in Iowa. Um, and make no mistake about it. I mean, poll, poll, the most recent polling, he is a clear cut front runner in Iowa right now. He has done so preaching a much more moderate message. You know, and, it, and in seemingly really taking away from Elizabeth Warren's own base. You know, they, there's a lot of overlap between maybe not ideologically, but when you look, talk about white college educated voters, both of where they're the strongest at, you know, and he's been able to reduce her support by arguing, particularly in debates, that her plan is too far reaching, that it's not politically feasible, that we need to take a, a smarter pathway, not trying to take away anyone's private um, health insurance. And it's, it's, it's been fascinating to, to watch. So, I'm I'm curious, Jim, I want to ask you, I mean, it seems like the bedrock of Joe Biden's support in North Carolina, as it is really nationally, it's with the African-American community, right? I mean, that seems to be, he is, at this point, I mean, no other candidate seems to even get past 10% support nationally with, with black voters. I mean, you're just comping versus the other primary Sure. Um, opponents. It's that's not the bedrock of his support. He's got support that well extends well beyond the African well, he, American community. His his support is certainly broader, much broader than that. You're saying what is differentiating him right now? I say it's what it's differentiating, and I and I would argue that is his strongest support. You know, of any single constituency, it is the African American vote more than more than any other at this point. I mean, what 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 is your read when you when you talk with African Americans in the state, whether that's leaders or or in the grassroots, um, what their feeling is with Joe Biden, why they're supportive. You know, I think they're they're plenty supportive of uh, uh, Joe Biden for sure because they know him. Uh, they they've known him. He's got the uh, uh, partnership with President Obama, which goes a long way. But but Biden's support goes beyond that. You know, it's there's a lot of centrist Democrats. Uh, you know, people here like Erskine Bowles or uh, people who had been in the admin, earlier administrations who are more centrist Democrats. You know, they're in Biden's camp. Um, you know, Mayor Pete, on the other hand, could make inroads here, too. Once people get to know him, you know, if he adheres to that sort of centrist philosophy that he seems to have right now. And depending on how he does in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, North Carolina voters are like voters all over. They sort of respond to who's got the momentum and who looks like a winner. And, you know, unless he would get stopped 
if he, presuming he does well in Iowa, New Hampshire, and presuming he doesn't get stopped in South Carolina, then he could do well here. I mean, this is, uh, Jim, I mean, what's, what's your gut check to say on this? Because it's, to me, it's going to become the most pressing question of Buttigieg's campaign. Now that he is a real front runner, are people really going to vote for a 37-year-old mayor of Indiana's fourth largest city? And that's, that's his qualification. I thought you were going to go somewhere. I, I thought you were going to take the next step, which is oh, the... What are you going to say? You're going to say Is it? North Carolina going to vote for a gay man? Well, that's, that's, that's also part of it. And there's no, no hiding from that. I mean, Jim, what, what, is, what does your, your, your gut say about that now that... I mean, I don't think there's any question that the voters here are, are probably starting to take a more serious look at it. Yeah, I think they are. But, you know, even in South Carolina, I mean, I think the uh, Pete's campaign came out with a, a focus group study that was published in the Times a, a week or two ago that showed uh, support among African-Americans kind of thin, uh, I think, in part because of the uh, social issues. Our own you know? Dave Katniss uh, from McClatchy, shout out to Dave, uh, reported that, um, actually. Um, and it was it became major news uh, across across the uh uh, political landscape for that. But yeah, that was that stirred a lot of discussion, stirred yeah. a lot of discussion. African-American voters are, a lot of them are very conservative socially. Uh, you know, uh, we had a, a, a vote here, a referendum in, in 2012 about marriage. Uh, it was a marriage amendment that was on the ballot and it would have prohibited uh, gay marriage, actually. And it passed with a lot of support from African-Americans. So that could be an issue. You know, there are a lot of issues. People don't know him as well. Uh, down here, he hasn't been here at all. He's been in South Carolina. Across oh, he hasn't the state visited. Line. He hasn't visited once. He hasn't been in North Carolina unless he's been to the airport and <laughs> on his way to South Carolina. That doesn't count. That's a, that's a really interesting point that he hasn't come through here yet. I know that after um, Dave's story and everybody else started picking up on on that piece of the puzzle that we're talking about, Pete Buttigieg's team started to do tremendous amounts of outreach with the African-American community, with donors in the African-American community, in big cities at least. The fact that Mayor Pete's team is not working North Carolina hard, what does that tell you? Does that tell you anything? Does he think he can't win here? No, I just think it says that the the calendar is kind of uh, crowded. You know, on March 3rd, you know, there's a lot of other states, and I think he's somebody like him has to devote a lot of time to uh, the first four contests, um, and he has been to South Carolina, and he has appeared at black audiences in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is right across the state line. So he is making a, a, an effort there, and uh, there haven't been that many candidates in North Carolina. Too soon? Too soon, I think. You know, it's, uh, it's, Are you uh, disappointed by that, Jim? It, 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 may, maybe not. Maybe you guys have enough going on. He gets to hold yeah. on to his personal life for a few more weeks. <laughs> yeah, we do have a lot going on. And, uh, you know, it's kind of nice living next to South Carolina because we get it all sort of vicariously. So, so we are um, within just a few weeks of having some recent electoral evidence, right? And that is the NC9 race. Talk to us about Bishop and what you read into that. Well, I, I think uh, you're talking about the special race in the 9th Congressional District, uh, which had to happen after uh, a little absentee ballot scandal back uh, last year, that or earlier thing. this year, last year. That what? little thing. That little thing. Um, you know, and Bishop uh, uh, beat a better financed Democrat, Dan McCready, who had, had been running really for three years. He, like literally three years, right? Yeah, like his daughter yeah. had, had her, his daughter not been born, and now she's like two and a half years old, and she's it really in college already. That's right. <laughs> um, it probably feels like that for Dan McCready. So, and Dan Bishop is a state senator who, um, 
really uh, tied himself to the president. And the president came down here this year twice, once in Greenville, North Carolina, where they had the had a rally, and, and then once in Fayetteville, which is actually in the district. Um, and, and, you know, they were tied at the hip. And uh, Bishop won with uh, strong support in, outside of Mecklenburg County. Mecklenburg County is Charlotte. Um, so there were a lot of sub- suburbs, uh, further out suburbs, the exurbs, I guess, uh, where he had support, and the rural areas, and he won, um, he won with those. I mean, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. I mean, if, when you take the march, if you look at what happened in 2018 for the general election, um, and then the follow-up special election, you know, roughly six months later or a little longer than that, I mean, McCready's advantage actually increased in the more suburban areas relative to 2018, but he just got hammered even more in the rural areas. And, and that was noteworthy to me. It's this trend that we have seen, and it's, look, it's decades long and all that, but that has pushed the suburbs and urban areas more towards Democrats and has pushed rural and exurban areas toward Republicans. That hasn't stopped, <laughs> in other words, since 2018. It, it's, it's continuing, and it's continuing to, to grow. Well, I mean, Republicans can't even win in Wake anymore or right. in Mecklenburg. Right. Uh, well, I mean, and you see this in, in almost any major metro area at this point. Um, and it was really the story of the 2018 midterm elections that a lot of these suburbs that had long been these GOP strongholds suddenly went blue and they right. went very, very blue. And it is again, these, we're talking about a longer trend that has intensified in the era of Donald Trump um, because of his. Uh, we'll, we'll just say attitude and behavior in office in particular um, has driven away a lot of more affluent uh, suburban voters who maybe are ideologically conservative, but just so put off by the president personally. Yeah, we didn't, you know, it wasn't just a, uh, the congressional race in which we saw that. But uh, in 2018, we had a county commission race. Mm-hmm. In the county commission race, obviously, there are nine people that represent the entire county. And they had, there had always been two or three Republicans on the county commission for a long time, and they were all swept out of office uh, in, in 2018, including uh, somebody who'd been on the commission for 20 years. I, I mean, and, and the, the, the truth is, these days, I mean, the saying, of course, was that all politics was local. Uh, we've been saying that for decades. The truth is, all politics are national now, and it feels like just the national environment sets the tone for everything from the presidential race down to the congressional races, down to county commissioners or even uh, city council seats. Uh, I don't at, agree. at this point, no, I it is because it, it's not. It wasn't just Mecklenburg County; it was uh, Delaware County in Pennsylvania, suburban Philadelphia. Um, again, this is an area you know when I started covering yeah. politics in Pennsylvania, that would have been more of a GOP stronghold. You had council members losing seats, and that's just that's all it is. I, I actually think it's a it's a um, from a political journal standpoint, it's a disappointing de- development because all politics everywhere is starting to feel the same. It's all about the same issues and it same ideological battle. Well, you do have there is you know? room. There is. I'm not Bevin saying it's total complete. Because people hated Bevin. It had nothing true. to do with Donald Trump. No, that's true. Well, I, I would I would argue that I mean there are still suburban voters in Louisville who like aren't especially fond of Donald Trump. I mean, I don't think he helps. I agree that that race was mostly about uh, Matt Bevin and not not Donald Trump, but... I think you are painting with too broad a brush. That's probably right. That's probably right.
Live sports are canceled, but the world of wrestling is holding strong. Can we talk about that? Yes, please. Every week we're talking about all things wrestling on our podcast, Kind of Fun. I'm Ben, a super fan who knows all the angles. And I'm Katie, a wrestling insider and filmmaker documenting the world behind the ropes. And no matter what the world of sports looks like, there's always something new happening in the squared circle. From AEW to New Japan to the Indies and beyond, we've got all the latest wrestling gossip and news. Listen to Kind of Fun free, only on Spotify. Let's shift because we are sitting in Charlotte and really we are right where the Republican convention is going to be. In <laughs> like a few literally months. on top like of literally it. Literally on top of where the Republican convention is going to be. And I don't know, are people talking about it here? Yeah, I think people are. You know, people are a little uh, wary of it, to be honest with you. Uh, we've had experience with one convention here uh, six years ago now. Do people years like ago. that? Did people at Charlotte like that convention? Were they really eager for another one? Did you one? like it? I was here and Where I did thought. You stay? I thought Charlotte was one of. I actually stayed literally down the street with our old uh, colleague, Charlie Green, uh, believe it or not. But. Um, you know, I thought Charlotte was lovely, but you throw a convention in the middle Charlie of any city. Charlie is lovely, yes. Charlie and, is lovely. And you throw the convention in the middle of any city, and I tell you what, it's not a lot of fun. Yeah, but Charlotte was not as locked down as Tampa was that year. True. That's a good was, point. I was in Tampa. They had chain link fences. It's like you're in a prison. Like you're in a prison. Like downtown was, you know, cordoned off. Completely. In Charlotte, it wasn't quite that bad. And I, they haven't uh, said what they're going to do or where they're going to do it exactly uh, for the Republican co- convention. I imagine it might be a little bit more locked down uh, just because I think people are uh, a little afraid, just given the political environment. People are wary of um, things happening here that, that didn't necessarily happen in 2012. So, you know, we'll see. So they have not set the perimeter yet, the security No, they perimeter. won't do that. They told us last week that they won't do that until summer. Wow. Or they won't tell us that they've done well, that they until won't tell summer. Us. You can pretty much tell where it is. Uh, downtown Charlotte is like an island uh, surrounded by this uh, beltway that goes around downtown. So it's sort of, it's sort of uh, cordoned off naturally um so the the perimeter would be within this um in this center city so the concerns are security concerns yeah and and are they concerns of people in charlotte or republicans in general or or, or who who's voicing these concerns well, so just, early on just people in charlotte people um who uh who follow the news and and see what's happening and uh you know, you know, see that that was a few weeks ago. There was a confrontation in Portland between the Proud Boys and the Antifa people, and uh, you know, it's sort of see what happens. Yeah, for what it's worth, and maybe it's worth nothing. There was a lot of talk right before the 2016 convention. Just what I was about to say. That yeah. security was going to be difficult, that there were going to be protesters and riots, that the you know, white supremacists were going to show up, uh, and none of that came to pass. In fact, the Republican convention logistically, you know, from a journalist's point of view, was a heck of a lot easier to deal with than the Democratic much, convention in much Philly. Much easier, much, much easier. And, and actually, props to the city of Cleveland. They did a, a wonderful job. I remember, I mean, media, everyone in every reporter who was going to cover that got like riot training, you know, what to do. And I know I was working at Roll Call and we had the, the same thing. And, and like people at NPR, I think, were getting like body armor. Ready. And none of that came to pass in, in 2016 on a more optimistic note. And I would say it wasn't as if 2012 was especially calm. And I just say that as someone who got caught literally in the middle of an Occupy uh, Wall Street protest <laughs> walking around Charlotte. Um, you know, so these things are always crazy. But um, remember them? I, I, I do. 
Bernie Sanders remembers them really well. Yeah, well, I remember in 2004 in Boston, um, you know, it was the first convention after 9-11 and we all got gas masks, you know, and had to go through uh, security training. Hostile mm. environments yeah. training. Right? I mean, in the convention, the RNC was in New York that year. So we were, we're talking about how security concerns uh, or we think are going to be crazy. I'm probably probably compared to 2004. Right. I'm guessing it's it's nothing. So, you know, like, you know, you always can, it's easy to forget even the recent past. But listen, the upside to this for people in Charlotte is you're going to make a ton of money renting your house out. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I'm looking for a yeah. house. Just FYI. Jane, this is your chance. Wow. Fantastic. Because I'm not sleeping on <laughs> Sherry's couch. Sherry's the executive editor here at the Charlotte Observer. Let's move on to the penultimate section where you two get to tell me something that I do not know. And I'm staring at you, Alex Rorty. I guess I'll go first. Um, I, I just want to uh, make a note for all the things that we talk about here that are, of course, super important to the 2020 general election. One thing that is always more important than anything else, it's the economy. And you might have missed it in all the impeachment hoopla or the Democratic primary or anything else going on at the White House. But forecasters have maybe quietly, as far as the political world is concerned, lowered their estimates for a recession next year. Uh, This has happened just in the last few weeks. And it is fair to say, um, as I did on on Twitter, actually, that despite everything happening, the president's odds of reelection probably have gone up in the last month because, of course, There is really nothing more harmful to a president's chances in a general election than a recession if we uh, manage to avoid one next year. You know, look, that's almost the whole ballgame. Are you changing your position on whether Donald Trump is going to be reelected? I would like to make a note of that if you are. I am calling it as I see it. And there's no doubt that not having a recession helps him. I still think he is in a difficult place, although I would grant you since that podcast and I came out a little hot. Came out a little hot, hot. a little hot, Um, That you know, including some of the New York Times, Seattle polls that came out that, look, he is absolutely 100 percent still very much in this ballgame. I I love that you did that on the record. I just love it. We're going to come back to that so many times. Do people want to listen to a boring podcast? Do you want me to hear me like hem and haw and say, oh, you know, I think he's got a 50 fit. No, no. You know, and I still believe it for what it's worth. And I still think that. He should be in a stronger position than he is. I do firmly believe that, but through no fault of his own, whether it's the tweets or whatnot uh, coming from the White House, the agenda that they pushed his first year in office, that he's in a relatively weak position and in a weaker position than he should be. All right. I'm done listening to you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What about you, Jim? I got to go back to the convention, you know, as a former history major, you know, we could be looking at history here with uh, the first impeached president to be renominated for a second term ever, which... Nobody knows how this is going to turn out, and I, I don't know if Alex is right or or not. But um, you know, it just be it would be historic, and it would be at an at another dimension to the convention. So um, you know, it'll be a pretty crazy convention anyway. I think, but that might make it a little bit more dicey. Republicans in North Carolina talking about that possibility and the impact of it yet? No, you know, they're really. Uh, Buckle down. I mean, you don't see, you know, we used to have a divided Republican Party here between moderates and conservatives, and that just doesn't exist anymore. Are we moving on to the next segment? Are we picking our favorite reporter? You're right. We need to pick a local reporter that all of our listeners should follow. Thank you, Alex, for keeping me on track. I do what I can. Mine is Paul Steinheiser. 
Oh, yes. Paul. Paul. Uh, he worked for National Journal. He worked with us. For, for a, a spell. Sh- for, for a spell. spell. A spell is a good way to put that. Um, and, an excellent uh, reporter in New Hampshire. A little bit, as we've mentioned in recent episodes, um, a little bit of an afterthought for whatever reason, this Democratic primary. But if you want the latest on the ground developments, uh, he is uh, an excellent reporter to follow. Uh, let me give you his Twitter handle. It is Steinhauser NH1. That is S-T-E-I-N-H. A-U-S-E-R-N-H-1. Paul Seinhauser. Pick a more difficult one to spell next time, I think. <laughs> I know, that, that, that took a little long. <laughs> we might have to rethink spelling out the Twitter names. People could just kind of guess on Google. They could probably guess They on could Google. probably guess. Yeah, All it's, right, it's Jim, fine. You get, you get a pass because you don't have to spell it out, but you do have to identify somebody. Well, this is easier to spell, actually. Uh, I'd say Will Doran. He works for the Raleigh News and Observer, and he covers the legislature, and uh, more more. Importantly, I guess he's been covering redistricting, which we've done for a long, long time here. It is the story of North Carolina. Remember, in 18, we would have Colin Campbell join us for uh-huh. the and all we talked about were maps. All we talked about were maps with Colin. But I do love Will. I think he's great. I am going to stick with the Raleigh trend here. And I'm picking not a reporter, but an editor, Jordan Schrader. Um, Jordan has been my partner in crime since I came to McClatchy three years ago. He's got a really smart mind. And if you follow him on Twitter, you will get a piece of it. I feel like you're, you're, that's cheating. Why? He's an editor. He's we must editor. support our local editors uh, as well, friend. We're the ones wow. who make your gunk into readable material. That is, that is true. Bam! What? She knows it's true. It's true. Maybe not you, Jim. Maybe you're brilliant. But this guy over My here. My copy. Not even in English most of the time. Jeez. All right. Well, thank you to North Carolina producer Rachel Wise and Xavier Wang, as well as our D.C. producer Jeremy Sheeler, and of course, our executive producer Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't, keep it to yourself. Again, I, I got to stop saying that. Davin has recommended we stop saying that last